section 18 of the great events by famous historians volume 6 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by maria james the great events by famous historians volume 6 edited by charles f horn rossiter johnson and john rudd signing of the magna carta ad 1215 david hume the Great Charter is one of the most famous documents in history, regarded as the foundation of English civil liberty. It also stands as the historic prototype of later declarations of human freedom in various lands. In the Great Charter, as observed by Green, the vague expressions of the older charters were exchanged for precise and elaborate provisions. The Great Charter marks the transition from the age of traditional rights to the age of written legislation, of parliaments and statutes, which was soon to come. Close quote. King John of England, although compelled to submit to the loss of his French provinces in 1204, never after lost sight of plans for the renewal of the war with France. A bitter controversy with Pope Innocent III began over an election for the Archbishopric of Canterbury, and resulted in a bull deposing John, 1212 with a command to Philip of France to execute the deposition. John made terms with the Pope by agreeing to hold his kingdom in fief from the pontiff, and to pay an annual tribute of 1,000 marks, 1213. John then invaded France, in alliance with Otho IV, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and others, but was defeated at Bouvines, near Lille, in 1214. This ended John's endeavors to recover his lost power in France, and he could only think henceforth of ruling peaceably his own kingdom and preserving to his own advantage his now close connection with the Pope. But although the English king's reign had been full of unfortunate events, the last and most grievous of his trials still awaited him, and, quote, he was destined to pass through a series of more humiliating circumstances than had ever yet fallen to the lot of any other monarch. Under the feudal law of William the Conqueror, the ancient liberties of the Anglo-Saxons were greatly curtailed. In fact, the whole English people were reduced to a state of vassalage, which, for the majority, closely bordered upon actual slavery. Even the proud Norman barons themselves submitted to a kingly prerogative more absolute than was usual in feudal governments. A charter of comparative liberality had been granted by Henry I, renewed by Stephen, and confirmed by Henry II, but had never, either in letter or spirit, been made effective. And now came the great crisis, in which the matters at issue, first between the king and his barons, but ultimately between the crown and the subjects at large, were to be adjusted. The event was hastened by the exactions and impositions of John himself, and by personal as well as official conduct which rendered him odious to his people, these causes at length producing a general combination against him. The effect of John's lawless practices had already appeared in the general demand made by the barons of a restoration of their privileges, and after he had reconciled himself to the Pope, by abandoning the independence of the kingdom, he appeared to all his subjects in so mean a light that they universally thought they might with safety and honor insist upon their pretensions. 
nothing forwarded this confederacy so much as the concurrence of langton archbishop of canterbury though he was obtruded on the nation by a palpable encroachment of the see of rome ought always to be respected by the english this prelate whether he was moved by the generosity of his nature and his affection to public good or had entertained an animosity against john on account of the long opposition made by that prince to his election or thought that an acquisition of liberty to the people would serve to increase and secure the privileges of the church had formed the plan of reforming the government in a private meeting of some principal barons at london he showed them a copy of henry the first's charter which he said he had happily found in a monastery and he exhorted them to insist on the renewal and observance of it the barons swore that they would sooner lose their lives than depart from so reasonable a demand the confederacy began now to spread wider and to comprehend almost all the barons in england and a new and more numerous meeting was summoned by langton at st edmundsbury under colour of devotion he again produced to the assembly the old charter of henry renewed his exhortations of unanimity and vigour in the prosecution of their purpose and represented in the strongest colours the tyranny to which they had so long been subjected and from which it now behooved them to free themselves and their posterity the barons inflamed by his eloquence incited by the sense of their own wrongs and encouraged by the appearance of their power and numbers solemnly took an oath before the high altar to adhere to each other to insist on their demands and to make endless war on the king till he should submit to grant them they agreed that after the festival of christmas they would prefer in a body their common petition and in the meantime they separated after mutually engaging that they would put themselves in a posture of defence would enlist men and purchase arms and would supply their castles with the necessary provisions the barons appeared in london on the day appointed and demanded of the king that in consequence of his own oath before the prelate as well as in deference to their just rights he should grant them a renewal of henry's charter and a confirmation of the laws of st edward the king alarmed with their zeal and unanimity as well as with their power required a delay promised that at the festival of easter he would give them a positive answer to their petition and offered them the archbishop of canterbury the bishop of ely and the earl of pembroke as sureties for his fulfilling this engagement the barons accepted of the terms and peaceably returned to their castles during this interval john in order to break or subdue the league of his barons endeavoured to avail himself of the ecclesiastical power of whose influence he had from his own recent misfortunes had such fatal experience he granted to the clergy a charter relinquishing forever that important prerogative for which his father and all his ancestors had zealously contended yielding to them the free election on all vacancies reserving only the power to issue a congé de lire and to subjoin a confirmation of the election and declaring that if either of these were withheld the choice should nevertheless be deemed just and valid he made a vow to lead an army into palestine against the infidels and he took on him the cross in hopes that he should receive from the church that protection which she tendered to every one that had entered into this sacred and meritorious engagement and he sent to rome his agent william de mauclerc 
in order to appeal to the pope against the violence of his barons and procure him a favorable sentence from that powerful tribunal the barons also were not negligent on their part in endeavoring to engage the pope in their interests they dispatched eustace de vesci to rome laid their case before innocent as their feudal lord and petitioned him to interpose his authority with the king and oblige him to restore and confirm all their just and undoubted privileges innocent beheld with regret the disturbances which had arisen in england and was much inclined to favor john in his pretensions he had no hopes of retaining and extending his newly acquired superiority over that kingdom but by supporting so base and degenerate a prince who was willing to sacrifice every consideration to his present safety and he foresaw that if the administration should fall into the hands of those gallant and high-spirited barons they would vindicate the honor liberty and independence of the nation with the same ardor which they now exerted in defense of their own he wrote letters therefore to the prelates to the nobility and to the king himself he exhorted the first to employ their good offices in conciliating peace between the contending parties and putting an end to civil discord to the second he expressed his disapprobation of their conduct in employing force to extort concessions from their reluctant sovereign the last he advised to treat his nobles with grace and indulgence and to grant them such of their demands as should appear just and reasonable the barons easily saw from the tenor of these letters that they must reckon on having the pope as well as the king for their adversary but they had already advanced too far to recede from their pretensions and their passions were so deeply engaged that it exceeded even the power of superstition itself any longer to control them they also foresaw that the thunders of rome when not seconded by the efforts of the english ecclesiastics would be of small avail against them and they perceived that the most considerable of the prelates as well as all the inferior clergy professed the highest approbation of their cause besides that these men were seized with the national passion for laws and liberty blessings of which they themselves expected to partake there concurred very powerful causes to loosen their devoted attachment to the apostolic see it appeared from the late usurpations of the roman pontiff that he intended to reap alone all the advantages accruing from that victory which under his banners though at their own peril they had everywhere obtained over the civil magistrate the pope assumed a despotic power over all the churches their particular customs privileges and immunities were treated with disdain even the canons of general councils were set aside by his dispensing power the whole administration of the church was centered in the court of rome all preferments ran of course in the same channel and the provincial clergy saw at least felt that there was a necessity for limiting these pretensions the legate nicholas in filling those numerous vacancies which had fallen in england during an interdict of six years had proceeded in the most arbitrary manner and had paid no regard in conferring dignities to personal merit to rank to the inclination of the electors or to the customs of the country the english church was universally disgusted and langton himself 
though he owed his elevation to an encroachment of the Romish Sea, was no sooner established in his high office than he became jealous of the privileged annexed to it, and formed attachments with the country subjected to his jurisdiction. These causes, though they opened slowly the eyes of men, failed not to produce their effect. They set bounds to the usurpations of the papacy. The tide first stopped, and then turned against the sovereign pontiff, and it is otherwise inconceivable how that age, so prone to superstition and so sunk in ignorance, or rather so devoted to a spurious erudition, could have escaped falling into an absolute and total slavery under the court of Rome. About the time that the Pope's letters arrived in England, the malcontent barons, on the approach of the festival of Easter, when they were to expect the king's answer to their petition, met by agreement at Stamford, and they assembled a force consisting of above two thousand knights, besides their retainers and inferior persons without number. Elated with their power, they advanced in a body to Brackley, within fifteen miles of Oxford, the place where the court then resided, and they there received a message from the king, by the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Earl of Pembroke, desiring to know what those liberties were which they so zealously challenged from their sovereign. They delivered to these messengers a schedule, containing the chief articles of their demands, which was no sooner shown to the king than he burst into a furious passion, and asked why the barons did not also demand of him his kingdom, swearing that he would never grant them such liberties as must reduce himself to slavery. No sooner were the confederate nobles informed of John's reply than they chose Robert Fitzwalter their general, whom they called the Marechal of the Army of God and of Holy Church, and they proceeded without further ceremony to levy war upon the king. The gates of Bedford Castle were willingly opened to them by William Beecham, its owner. They advanced to Ware on their way to London, where they held a correspondence with the principal citizens. They were received without opposition into the capital, and finding now the great superiority of their force, they issued proclamations requiring the other barons to join them and menacing them, in case of refusal or delay, with committing devastation on their houses and estates. In order to show what might be expected from their prosperous arms, they made incursions from London, and laid waste the king's parks and palaces, and all the barons, who had hitherto carried the semblance of supporting the royal party, were glad of this pretense for openly joining a cause which they had always secretly favoured. The king was left at Odium in Hampshire, with a poor retinue of only seven knights, and after trying several expedients to elude the blow, after offering to refer all differences to the pope alone, or to eight barons, four to be chosen by himself, and four by the confederates, he found himself at last obliged to submit at discretion. A conference between the king and the barons was appointed at Runnymede, between Windsor and Staines, a place which has ever since been extremely celebrated on account of this great event. The two parties encamped apart like open enemies, and after a debate of a few days, the king, with a facility somewhat suspicious, signed and sealed the charter which was required of him. This famous deed, commonly called the Great Charter, 
either granted or secured very important liberties and privileges to every order of men in the kingdom, to the clergy, to the barons, and to the people. The freedom of elections was secured to the clergy, the former charter of the king was confirmed, by which the necessity of a royal congé d'élire and confirmation was superseded. All check upon appeals to Rome was removed, by the allowance granted every man to depart the kingdom at pleasure, and the fines to be imposed on the clergy for any offence were ordained to be proportional to their lay estates, not to their ecclesiastical benefices. The privileges granted to the barons were either abatements in the rigour of the feudal law, or determinations in points which had been left by that law, or had become, by practice, arbitrary and ambiguous. The reliefs of heirs succeeding to a military fee were ascertained, and earls and barons at a hundred marks, a knight's at a hundred shillings. It was ordained by the charter that, if the heir be a minor, he shall, immediately upon his majority, enter upon his estate, without paying any relief. The king shall not sell his wardship, he shall levy only reasonable profits upon the estate, without committing waste or hurting the property. He shall uphold the castles, houses, mills, parks, and ponds, and if he commit the guardianship of the estate to the sheriff or any other, he shall previously oblige them to find surety to the same purpose. During the minority of a baron, while his lands are in wardship, and are not in his own possession, no debt which he owes to the Jews shall bear any interest. Heirs shall be married without disparagement, and before their marriage be contracted, the nearest relatives of the person shall be informed of it. A widow, without paying any relief, shall enter upon her dower the third part of her husband's rents. She shall not be compelled to marry, so long as she chooses to continue single. She shall only give security never to marry without her lord's consent. The king shall not claim the wardship of any minor who holds lands by military tenure of a baron, on pretense that he also holds lands of the crown, by sockage or any other tenure. Scottishes shall be estimated at the same rate as in the time of Henry I, and no Scottish or aid except in the three general feudal cases, the king's captivity, the knighting of his eldest son, and the marrying of his eldest daughter, shall be imposed but by the great council of the kingdom. The prelates, earls, and great barons shall be called to this great council, each by a particular writ the lesser barons by a general summons of the sheriff. The king shall not seize any baron's land for a debt to the crown if the baron possesses as many goods and chattels as are sufficient to discharge his debt. No man shall be obliged to perform more service for his fee than he is bound to by his tenure. No governor or constable of a castle shall oblige any knight to give money for castle guard if the knight be willing to perform the service in person, or by another able-bodied man, and if the knight be in the field himself by the king's command, he shall be exempted from all other service of this nature. No vassal shall be allowed to sell so much of his land as to incapacitate himself from performing his service to his lord. End of section 18.